we preach Christ crucified. Other people do these things. The Jews are involved in this. The Greeks are involved in that. But we as saints, we as believers, we have one theme, and that is to preach Christ crucified. You're listening to a sermon series titled Together, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Dean, for reading God's Word for us, and to Chris for leading us in worship. Um, it's been a privilege to be in freedom, hasn't it? I think this is our fifth week here, fourth or fifth Sunday here, uh, and we're very thankful that the Lord opened the doors for us to be uh, in this facility. Uh, we were thankful for the why uh, for so many years, um, but this is definitely a little bit nicer, uh, and we're thankful to be able to use their sound system and their stage, and I think just everything is just um, pumped up a notch. So glad to see you this morning. I've seen some of you uh, for the first time coming back in the midst of all this, so I'm glad to see you. Glad to see the guests as well. Uh, like Dean said, my name is Mike. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and I get to preach uh, a couple times a year uh, whenever Pastor Pilgrim decides that he's going to leave and go somewhere, uh, whether it's speaking or, like this time, they are on vacation in North Carolina. Um, they're in actually a really remote area, and he texted me and said, it's actually so remote, we might, actually, we might go somewhere else, because um, we are, it's too remote, actually. So uh, he said they might be down to Atlanta to spend some time there. Uh, Pastor Pilgrim actually grew up for part of his years in Atlanta, so that's a place he's familiar with. But be praying for them. Be praying for them as a family as they just take about two weeks to rest and relax, and uh, that they would come back with great energy um, and ready um, to serve. So it's a privilege to, uh, to preach this morning and to continue in our series. Uh, if this is your first week joining us in a while. We are uh, in the midst of a five-part series together, which is um, out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and it's about the nature and the makeup of the church. But as we begin this morning, uh, brothers and sisters, let's be reminded that this book that we hold in our hands is the very Word of God. Uh, over 2,500 times, just in the Old Testament, God said He spoke what is written in these pages. And we know that Scripture has great authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. We know that Scripture is sufficient, meaning that we have everything that we need and godliness in these pages. Uh, we know what God requires of us. We know that Scripture is also inerrant and infallible. That means that it's totally true and absolutely trustworthy. And finally, we know that the Word of God is active, it's powerful, it's living, it's cleansing, it's nourishing and sanctifying. So let's not take for granted these pages and these words that we have. And remember that they have authority in our lives this morning as we come to them. Uh, as we started this series a couple weeks ago, just to recap, we first looked at what is the church out of chapter 11. Has, has something changed about the church in the year 2020 with everything that our world has gone through? Well, no, of course, not at all, not one bit. We uh, went through five marks of a church. Does anybody remember 
uh, what those are. Uh, Pastor Pilgrim taught us that it was a gathering. It is united. It is distinct. It is a covenant community, and we are called to be considerate of one another. Uh, We were encouraged not to forsake the gathering, not to be divisive, not to be worldly or act selfishly. And finally, we were encouraged not to overlook the church. And from there, we moved to spiritual gifts, gifts in chapter 12. And we saw that spiritual gifts are given only to true regenerate believers. We saw that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is involved in giving them. Uh, that they are for the common good of the church that there is a variety of gifts, and that they are given individually, but it's the Holy Spirit who empowers them. And last week, we looked at what is a church member. What is a church member? We saw that every believer, uh, if you are saved, if you repented and trusted in Christ this morning, you are part of the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ. We are all part of the global church. Um, But we also looked at that each believer is called to be committed and submitted to a local expression of the church, and that we each have an important role to play in that. We are a part of a covenant community that distinguishes us from the world. It disciplines us for holiness, disrupts our independence, depends on us to participate, and has dispatched us on mission. And we are at an exciting time in the life of our church. We are. Even though the world is in chaos in some ways, we know that the gospel and God's plans and purposes move forward. And so Pastor Pilgrim and I, we are excited to, um, to continue to move forward, to start to see the process once again, to see new elders and deacons raised up, and also move towards having a formal process to become committed members of Shoreline. And we're looking forward to kick that off, Lord willing, in the fall. But it's that last that last application point from his sermon last week, that he has dispatched us all on mission. As members of Christ's body, that is what he has done. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? And we're going to be studying the first 11 verses, as we know, as Dean already read of chapter 15. But it's always good, it's always wise when we come to a passage of Scripture that we understand where it fits uh, the context, even the context of the book itself. Uh, so up to this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been dress, addressing different issues in the church. In the first four chapters... He pleads for unity for the church, in the church, and he goes back to the gospel, and he says, what is our rallying cry? What is our theme? It's to preach Christ crucified. He says that in chapter one, and so he said, if there is any boasting to be done, let it be boasting in the gospel. Let it be boasting in God's glory and nothing in ourselves. In chapters 5 and 6, he addresses immorality in the church and how church discipline must be carried out. In chapter 7, he speaks on marriage principles. And in chapters 8 through 10, he speaks on the liberty we have as Christians. And he points to two examples. He points to his own life, and he also points to the Israelites in the Old Testament and showing how that they were actually a bad example to us, um, how they misused the liberty that they had, and they fell into idolatry and immorality. And as a result, they disqualified themselves from the Lord's blessing. Chapters 11 through 14 deal with worship in the church on Sundays. What does the gathered church look like when they come together? And so he talked about men's and women's roles in the church, 
talks about the Lord's Supper and, of course, spiritual gifts, which we have already talked about. But as we come to chapter 15 this morning, we see the great hope of the church, the great hope that we have as believers. It's made possible by the work of Christ, which gives us our mandate and it gives us the mission of the church. But as we look across the world, uh, as we look at organizations and companies, we know that uh, every organization, every company has some sort of mission statement, don't they? Why do they exist? What is their purpose? Uh, and so I looked up a couple uh, this week, just curious. Uh, and so NASA, and I think we have this on the screen, NASA's mission statement is to drive advances in science, technology, aeronautics, and space exploration to enhance knowledge, education, innovation, economic vitality, and stewardship of Earth. It's a well-written mission statement. I like that one. Uh, the organization that Katrina and I have the privilege of serving with outside of our church, Global Serve International, we've been uh, with this mission organization for 11 years now. We have the privilege of being supported by this church and other churches in this ministry, but our mission statement, and I should have this memorized, I don't, uh, but the mission statement of Global Serve is this. We are committed to the work of the Great Commission in the most challenging regions, no matter the cost, through cross-cultural church planning, making disciples, and the translation of God's word among people groups who currently have no access to the gospel. That is Global Serve's mission statement. And then finally, I looked up one of my favorite restaurants here in Brayton, Sarasota. It's Papo's. Um, if you haven't been to Papo's, go today after church. Tell them I sent you. They'll have no idea who I am, but tell them that I sent you. And I would argue that Papo's is better than Chipotle. I know you might not agree with that. We have, well, we have one clapping. Thank you for that. Uh, but I really do think it's better than Chipotle. But this is Papo's mission statement. Our mission, and this is a lofty one, <laughs> our mission is to re redefine the fast, casual food experience. Have they done that? No. Oh to exceed reasonable expectations. Okay, they can, I've seen them do that. And to do things no one else is doing. Wow, that's a high standard. We put our hearts and minds into every aspect of our craft, the seen and the unseen. What is the unseen? Uh, yeah. uh, because we believe the difference can be felt, experienced, and tasted. It's a well-written statement, but I think it's a little, they're reaching a little high there. To do things no one else is doing. But you should go and have Papa's this afternoon. So I just, I was curious, what are some mission statements? Um, and kind of getting a different um, balance of organizations there. But when it comes to the church, what is the mission of the church? And I'll give you the answer right now. It's not complicated. Um, it's very straightforward and clear. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel, which is Christ crucified and risen to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and see disciples raised up who will go on to make more disciples. Let me say that again. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel, which is Christ crucified and risen to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and see disciples raised up who will go on to make more disciples. At its core, it's very simple. Going back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. Other people do these things. The Jews are involved in this. The Greeks are involved in that in the context of chapter 1. But we as saints, we as believers, we have one theme, and that is to preach Christ crucified. 
And we'll see from this passage this morning that it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But more on that a little bit later. So there are three aspects that we're going to see this morning from these 11 verses. So if you're taking note, here is where we will be going. So the mission of the church was, number one, proclaimed by Paul and the apostles. Number two, the mission of the church was fueled by the resurrection. And number three, the mission of the church continues by God's power and purpose. So let's go with number one. The mission of the church was proclaimed by Paul and the apostles. Let's look at verses one through three again. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we'll stop there. Right off the bat, Paul calls them brothers. And something that he has already done multiple times in this book. He's assuring them at this point that he recognizes them to be fellow Christians. They are believers. And what he is about to say to them is nothing new, but it is reiterating the gospel that they had, uh, had been previously preached to them. It's the gospel that they believed in and the gospel in which they are standing in, which they are saved by. And he's also saying that the Corinthian believers themselves were evidence that this gospel was true. Your lives are an evidence that the gospel was true. Because they came out of spiritual blindness. They came out of the deadness of Judaism or paganism, pagan religions. They came out of that into the marvelous light of Christ. And Paul's phrase there in verse 2 is very important for us to consider for a moment. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So let's be clear that this is not teaching that believers are in danger of losing their salvation. But it is a warning. It is a warning to us of shallow faith that does not save. Another way to read this would be this on the screen. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless your faith is worthless or unless you without effect. Unless your faith is worthless or unless you believed without effect. Let's look at this a little bit. Uh, because Paul's teaching on the security of the believer and, and the other uh, apostles uh, in other places in God's word is so clear. And so when, when we come to a, a line or a phrase in scripture that we're thinking, man, I'm not, it sounds like it might be in this, I'm not sure. That's why we compare scripture with scripture, let interp scripture interpret itself. And so, in Romans 8, 29 through 30, this is a verse we take great comfort in. What does it say? You know it. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We read this this morning. And those he, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that process of our salvation, all the way to glorification, when we are saved, it is set. It is, it is completed. We can have um, assurance and faith that just as when the moment that we believed and we were justified, we were made right before God, also at that moment, our future glorification was set in motion. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is made possible by God's power alone. It's entirely a work of God. 
And so because it's entirely a work of God, our salvation is also kept secure by him, by Christ holding us fast. We, song the, we sing the, the great song uh, here at Shoreline, He will hold me fast. Uh, what does it say? It reminds us that when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. We acknowledge, and even singing that song, we acknowledge that we are not perfect. We sin, we fall into temptation, we even still willfully sin, but Christ holds us fast. And the difference is, is that our desire is not to sin. Our desire is to hold on to Christ. And the fact that we have that desire is evidence that he is holding on to us. That's evidence that Christ is holding on to us. And many of us, I've been in this place as well, I know probably most of us in this room have been in that place where we've doubted our salvation because we keep falling into a certain sin. Maybe we willfully sin. It's, it's, it's a sin that we have trouble with to overcome. But it's that fact that if we are convicted by it, if we are driven to repentance, it's proof that the Holy Spirit is living and active in us. It's that opposite attitude where there's no regard, where there's no desire, where maybe there was a time in your life where you acknowledged that, yeah, I think this is true. I think what the Bible says is true. I think Jesus did die and rise from the dead. Um, but it's only that um, kind of uh, just that acknowledgement. Um, there's never been a repentance. There's never been true faith. And then over time, there would be a rejection of it because it shows that there was never salvation to begin with. This person cannot hold fast because he is not being held by Christ. I want to recommend a great book to you. Uh, it's called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to pick it up. Um, if you want to grow in your understanding of what sanctification looks like, what the Christian walk looks like, this, this book will challenge you, um, it will encourage you, and it will um, drive you um, into the arms of the Lord and into his word. J.C. Ryle just has an amazing way of, of communicating about sanctification. And I have, a, I have a quote from the book this morning. This is what J.C. Ryle says. He says, I do not say for a moment that holiness shuts out the presence of indwelling sin. And when he's talking about holiness there, he's talking about that sanctification process, um, how we are to strive for holiness because God is holy. He says, no, far from it. It is the greatest misery of a holy man that he carries about with him a body of death. That often when he would do good, evil is present with him. That the old man is clogging all his movements and as it were trying to draw him back at every step he takes. And we see that in Romans 7 with Paul speaking on that. But it is the excellence of a holy man that he is not at peace with dwelling sin as others are. He hates it. He mourns over it. He longs to be free from his company. The work of sanctifying action within him is like the wall of Jerusalem. The building goes forward even in troubled times. And so is that true in your life this morning? Do you hate your sin? Do you mourn over it? Do you long to be free from its company? That is a mark of the believer. Paul spoke about this, but also Jesus did as well. Jesus spoke about this often. In Matthew 13, he talked about it in the parable of the soils. Also in the parable of many kinds of fish being caught 
same net. He talked about it in houses without foundations in Matthew 7, virgins without oil for their lamps, servants who wasted the money entrusted to them and were cast out in Matthew 25. One particular poignant passage uh, that we know is Matthew 7, when many will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this amazing thing in your name? And on that day of judgment, they will be barred from entrance to heaven because of their false faith. 1 John 2.19 also speaks clearly to this. You know this verse, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become, cl- become plain that they are not of us. So apparently there were uh, some in Corinth, some people in Corinth who outwardly acknowledged that Jesus was Savior, but they never had truly trusted in him. They believed only as the demons do in James chapter 2. Obedience and faithfulness are marks of true Christians. And why do I spend some time on this? Why am I talking about this? Because, honestly, one of the worst things I can do as one of the pastors here at Shoreline is give anyone a false assurance and say, you're good, it's all good, there's nothing to worry about, when, in fact, there has been no heart change and you are still dead in your sins. If this resonates with you all, Uh, at all, at any point this morning. Take some time. I encourage you. I plead with you. Take some time. Evaluate your life. What are your true intentions and desires? Is the fruit of the Spirit being displayed in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you have a desire to follow the Lord and His ways? Do you desire to know Christ and the power of His resurrection? Are you broken over the sin that you see in your life? I plead with you to consider that this morning. But let's continue on. Verse 3, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's get back to the gospel here. Um, Paul goes back to the Old Testament at this point as an evidence for the truth of the gospel and the resurrection. And don't miss that word, uh, the third word there, delivered. Don't miss that word. That's important um, because it, it shows us the authority behind all of this. It wasn't something that Paul made up. It wasn't something... Uh, that he came up with, he was delivering this truth that came from God. He was delivering it. And that's what the privilege that we have as pastors is to deliver God's word, to be reminded of God's word each Sunday. It's nothing that we have come up with. It comes from God. Over and over in the Old Testament, it foretold Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, Peter, and Paul all quote from the Old Testament to show this. Just a couple examples. On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, Jesus went back through the story of the Old Testament to show and explain all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. In Matthew 12, Jesus shows us how the story of Jonah connects to him. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man be in the grave. At Pentecost, Peter quoted from Psalm 16 and applied it to Christ. When Paul, when he was before King Agrippa, he said that Moses and the prophets spoke of what was going to happen with Jesus. Other passages like Psalm 22, Hosea 6, and of course, the most famous of all, Isaiah 53, they all point to Christ. So no faithful Jew would be surprised that Jesus was going to suffer and die. It was very clear. 
And actually, to make it even more clear, Paul repeats that phrase in accordance with the scriptures to emphasize it, that this isn't a new thing, and it actually, it doesn't contradict Jewish belief. So first, we see that the mission of the church, the gospel, was proclaimed here by Paul and the other apostles in verse 11, and we'll see that at the end. But secondly, the mission of the church was fueled by the resurrection. It's fueled by the resurrection. Let's look at verse 4 through 8. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, John MacArthur says this and the importance of the resurrection. Just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. And speaking of human philosophy and religious speculation, uh, after Buddha had passed away, a follower of his wrote this, When Buddha died, it was with that utter passing away in which nothing, nothing whatever remains. Let me say that again. When Buddha died, it was with that other passing away in which nothing whatever remains. It's gone. Nothing. Muhammad, he died in the year 632 at the age of 61. And Muslims, what do they do? Uh, They visit his tomb each year by the tens of thousands. But there's a big difference. They come to mourn his death, not to rejoice in his resurrection. Yet the church, friends, the church, not just on Easter Sunday, not just on Easter Sunday, but at every baptism, at every baptism, celebrates the victory of Jesus over death in the grave. Amen? Thank the Lord that there's no doubt, no doubt in the New Testament of the resurrection uh, at all. It's very clear. It's not ambiguous. And in fact, many Bibles have great charts and lists of Jesus' appearances. Um, I just uh, pulled up the one that was in my Bible. I want to show it to you this morning. Uh, So here is a list of uh, when Jesus appeared. Uh, in or around Jerusalem, he appeared to Mary Magdalene in John 20. He appeared to the other woman in Matthew 28. He appeared to Peter in Luke 24, uh, to the 10 disciples also in Luke 24 and John 20, to the 11, including Thomas in John 20, at his ascension in Luke 24 in Acts 1, uh, to the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, Galilee in Matthew 28 and John 21, to 500 people, to James and the apostles, uh, apostles in our passage here, also to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts and in our passage. Plenty of times. And the testimony of truthful eyewitnesses has been one of the most reliable forms of evidence that has been brought up and held up in courts of law for centuries. And Paul appeals, here in this passage, he appeals to this form of evidence. 
Uh, and over the years, there have been many um, authors, scholars, lawyers, historians, scientists, that they've been convinced of the truth of the resurrection because of the eyewitness testimony that we see in God's word. Uh, I found this quote from one historian, a man named Thomas Arnold of Oxford. He said this, The evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be, and often has been, shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up on an important case. I myself uh, done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And this is the key line right here. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. He knows of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved. What an amazing statement. So let's go through some of these appearance here, appearances here. Uh, Paul tells us that uh, Jesus appeared to Cephas. This is Peter. Uh, and one of the requirements uh, for apostleship was to have seen Jesus resurrected. And he chose in this list uh, to appear to a Peter first. And we don't know exactly why uh, he appeared to Peter first. Maybe to show his grace here. Um, Peter, of course, as we remember, had denied the Lord, but the Lord did not deny him. And it's possible that Jesus knew that, that Peter needed to see him the most. And, of course, we see in Acts um, how the Lord used Peter at Pentecost so powerfully uh, and in the expansion of the early church. So seeing Jesus resurrected was a key moment for him. Uh, also in uh, verse it says that Jesus appeared to the twelve. And as we know from this section, the apostles proclaimed the gospel. They laid the foundation for the church. They were honest and reliable witnesses to the most important in history. So he appeared to the twelve. Verse 6 tells us that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. What an amazing miracle. Uh, we don't know, again, we don't know exactly who these people were or when it took place. But they were obviously known to the church at the time. Because Paul says in this passage that even then, 20 years later, many were still alive. Although some had fallen asleep, some had uh, passed away. But they were known in the church. Because Paul can point to that man and to that man to that man and say, they were there. They saw, they were part of that group of 500 that saw the Lord after he was resurrected. So they were known at the church, known in the church at that time. Next in verse 7, he appears to James. Uh, and we don't know which James this was. It could be James the brother of John or James the son of Alphaeus. But a lot of commentators uh, tend to lean toward thinking that this was the James who was Jesus' half-brother. Uh, who wrote the book of James uh, and was a key leader in the church. Uh, we know from the Gospel of John, James, along with Jesus' other uh, half-siblings, was at first a skeptic. He did not believe his half-brother was the Messiah, uh, and we, we see this in John 7. But now that's all changed, uh, and it was probably due to the resurrection that was part of that change. But now James is counted among the apostles, and he is a power voice 
powerful voice for the gospel. And finally, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to all the apostles on other occasions that we have no details about. But now, in verse 8, we see Paul change gears a little bit here and share his own thoughts of seeing Jesus and the privilege that he had to be counted among the apostles. And Paul, as we know, was not one of the original apostles, the disciples, but he was allowed, like he says here, last of all, last of all, to see Jesus. And this was special because it was not only post-resurrection, but it was a post-ascension appearance. Jesus had already gone back to heaven, and yet he chose to uh, reveal himself to Paul. And even more unique, you could say, was that Paul was not a believer uh, at the time when Jesus appeared to him. And Paul refers to himself here, he uses an interesting phrase, as one untimely born. One untimely born. It's very interesting. What does it mean? Well, I look, the word in Greek is a word, ektroma, which it usually refers to an abortion, a miscarriage, or a premature birth uh, when there was death. It could mean that, that Paul was born without hope of meeting Christ, but in the context and in the flow of Paul's thoughts here, really the idea of bad timing seems to fit. Uh, Paul was born too late to be counted among the 12 disciples. Uh, and before his conversion, he was uh, separated from God. He was dead, uh, unsaved, dead in his sins. So he had those two things against him. He was born too late, uh, and until Jesus appeared, he was dead in his sins. So how could he be an apostle? How could he be even worthy to be an apostle? That's what he's saying here. Well, of course, we know only by God's grace and perfect plan. And so we see that the mission of the church was first proclaimed by Paul and the apostles, and then it was fueled by the resurrection. And, and, and we, I know we've talked about this um, in sermons. We, we probably mentioned it at Easter time. We talk about the resurrection, but we know that every disciple, uh, except, with the exception of John, went on to be martyred uh, for their faith. Um, and since that time, there have been many more martyrs of the faith, including up to this day. Uh, and those brothers and sisters who have died are not dying for a lie. They did not die for a lie. Christ was resur resurrected, and so many went to their grave proclaiming this gospel. So finally, we see there this morning, though, that the mission of the church continues by God's power and purpose. Continues by God's power and purpose. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Paul continues. He says, uh, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And so Paul continues here um, to reinforce that the gospel will go forth in God's power and nothing is going to stop it. Nothing. And Paul describes his part in it. Um, and he, in doing so, he really gives us a great example of humility and what our attitude should be. Uh, growing up, my mom used to say this phrase, and you've probably heard it, uh, there go I, but by the grace of God. Have you heard this phrase? 
Yeah, some of you have. There go I, but by the grace of God. And it's this idea that if it wasn't for God's sovereign grace in each of our lives, we would be lost eternally. And it also speaks to our life on earth, though. Uh, we would be making horrible decisions in this life uh, if it wasn't for the grace of God that has changed us. Uh, each night um, at our house around the dinner table, we try to have a, a time of devotion with our kids. And we've been going through um, the book of Proverbs um, through a book called, uh, oh, what's it called? Wise Up. That's right. Wise Up. It's called Wise Up. I highly recommend it um, to families with kids uh, if you want to spend some time in the Proverbs. But we've been um, asking our kids and going through this question. There's two voices. There's two voices in the book of Proverbs. It's the voice of what? The voice of wisdom and the voice of folly, foolishness, right? And so we've been talking with our kids. What voice are we going to listen to? What voice are we going to listen to? If we listen to the voice of wisdom, there will be blessings in this life. If we listen to the voice of folly, there will not be blessings. We will make bad decisions and go down a wrong road. Ultimately, if we continue to choose the voice of folly and we do not turn to Christ, that's, I guess, the ultimate decision of foolishness is not turning to Christ, and that has eternal repercussions. But as we're walking through this life, let us choose the voice of wisdom. That's something we're encouraging our kids. Even though, because of our sinful nature that we still have with us, sometimes we do choose the voice of God. We make bad decisions. But it's God's grace It's because he saved us, it's because he's changed us, and because his graces continue to empower us, we can choose wisdom. And so, there go I, but by the grace of God. And Paul never stopped. He never stopped being amazed uh, with the fact that the Lord would use him in such a great way. And from a human perspective, of course, he was not to be an apostle, not at all, because he persecuted the church so viciously. Of course, he didn't deserve to be an apostle. He didn't even deserve to live, honestly, for what he did. But because of God's amazing grace, he was chosen to serve in this way. And it's the same for us, brothers and sisters, this morning. Uh, We may not have that testimony of Paul where we were so hostile toward the church, although some do. But before the Lord saved us, we were hostile The Bible tells that we were hostile toward God. In our sin, we rejected him. We shook our fist at him and said, I know better. I don't need you. But now, because God has saved us, we can echo these words of Paul, and we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By God's grace and God's grace alone. And may we also be able to say along with Paul that his grace was not in vain. That's what Paul says next. And it could be that Paul's memory of persecuting the church prompted him to say this. And also say the next line, I worked harder than any of them. We know this is true. If um, later today, go and spend some time in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11 uh, through chapter 12. Go study that passage and you will see what Paul did, how he did work harder. The Lord used him in amazing ways. But Paul says, I worked harder. But then what else does he say? He quickly goes on to not boast of his own accomplishments, but boast in God's grace. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but God's grace. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that allows us to serve well. Colossians 1.29 has 
Paul telling us? What does it say? That he toils for the gospel. Paul toils for the gospel, struggling with all his energy, not Paul's energy, his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul toiled for the gospel, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that's true for us as well. As we toil for the gospel, as we struggle, it's the energy that Christ gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the resurrection fuels the mission of the church, and it certainly brought a fire into Paul's life because he was changed, wasn't he? He was changed from being a persecutor of the church to being her greatest defender. He left the life of a self-righteous Pharisee and instead with selfless love to many. Instead of throwing Christians in prison, he was involved in setting captives free. Instead of taking life, he literally gave life back to some, and he proclaimed the life-giving gospel. But we finish up with verse 11. What does verse 11 say? Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Whether it was Paul or the apostle, Preaching a gospel secured in the fact of the resurrection is what they were faithful to do. May we be faithful as well. And because of their faithfulness, the Corinthian church was born. Preaching the crucified and risen Christ is the mission of the church. And since we are members of the church, it continues on today and it has become our mission as well. Do you remember Romans 10, 14 through 15? It's often quoted when speaking about missionaries. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's true. How beautiful are the feet, or our feet, when we take the gospel and proclaim it. So three points this morning. The gospel and the mission of the church was proclaimed by Paul and the apostles. It was fueled by the resurrection, and it continues on today by God's power and purpose. And so that brings us to some application to consider this morning. We also have three application points today. Number one, may we serve the Lord faithfully to show that his grace toward me was not in vain. And this phrase really, really stuck with me um, this week and um, in the weeks as I've been reading this and preparing for today. And I was thinking, am I, am I fulfilling my ministry? In 2 Timothy, Paul, Paul tells Timothy that. He says, fulfill your ministry. And I was thinking, am I being faithful to fulfill my ministry? Am I living faithfully to show that God's grace toward me, who did not deserve at all, um, salvation, that his grace toward me was not in vain. We know, brothers and sisters, from Ephesians 2, that we have been created and saved for good works, that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So the question is, are we being faithful in those? If we have truly trusted Christ, we are a new creation. We have new goals. We have a new perspective. We have a new worldview, and we have a new mission. And this is true. It is true in spite of any virus. It's true in spite of any politician. It's true in spite of any period in your life. It's so easy to get distracted. 
man, we have way too much information at our fingertips these days. It's easy to lose focus. May we not, may we not lose focus through these turbulent times and give in to complacency and laziness because it's so easy to do. It's easy. It's easy to sit back, to watch church online, and not serve the Lord in the way we should. May we not lose our focus, brothers and sisters. So may, may we be able to say, along with Paul, that God's grace towards us was not in vain. Number two for us today, may we stand in the truth of the gospel. And I should have added, may we stand firm, may we stand strong, may we stand unwavering in the truth of the gospel. We need to. Um, and this is not a call for us to be full-time apologists necessarily, like Ravi Zacharias. Maybe the Lord will call you to do that. But we do need to be able to stand for God's word, to be able to stand for truth, and to defend it at some level. The quote that I shared earlier from Thomas Arnold, remember what he said um, as he was researching the resurrection? He said that he researched it not to persuade others, but to persuade himself. He, he researched it for himself, and that's important. That's important because now more than ever, we have resources at our fingertips to do our own research about the truth of God's word and the claims within. We can do our own research, and it's got to be, it's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel that we have some knowledge in this area. And then the other side to this question is, really honestly, do we stand? Do we stand for the truth of God's word? I mean, I know we would all say that we would. We would raise our hands and agree, yes, I stand for the truth of the gospel. But when opposition comes, it has a way, and the Lord ordains it. The Lord ordains the opposition. It has a way of pruning the church, showing who is the true church. And we're seeing this right now. We're seeing the church being persecuted and attacked in different levels. In our country, around the world, and I've been encouraged by some. I've been encouraged, particularly by Grace Community Church in California, extremely encouraged by the pastors and elders there. Um, but honestly, I've been mostly discouraged by many, many pastors who have given up ground and kneeled to oppressive politicians in some ways. It's been discouraging. May we stand for God's word even in spite of a world that will hate us, that will hate us, that will ostracize us, that will threaten to shut off power, to shut off water. May we stand for God's word and stand for the truth of the gospel. And then finally, our third point for us this morning is may we live the mission. May we live the mission. May we be about the Lord's business, the mission of the church, proclaiming the gospel and discipling those who the Lord brings into our path. Now, who do you have in your life who do you have in your life? Maybe an unbelieving neighbor, family member, or a new believer, or not even a new believer, just a believer that you're meeting with and you're encouraging one another, sharpening one another in God's word. Who do you have in your life? How do we even start with this? How do we even start? Well, we've actually set up this series um, in a way to show this because first, we have to understand what the church is. We have to understand what the church is. How is God using the church? Then we have to ask ourselves, am I even a member of the church? Am I saved at that first level? Am I saved? Have I been baptized into Christ's body? But then at the next level, am I committed to a local expression of the church? Are you committed to Shoreline? 
And then the next is knowing your spiritual gifts. What gifts do you have, and how are you able to use those gifts to edify and build up the body? And Pastor Pilgrim talked about this recently. How do you know, how can you find your spiritual gift? The easiest way to find out your spiritual gift is not taking a test. Although those can help, but it's not taking a test. It is by serving the Lord in the body of Christ, by trying different things, serving in different areas. And as you do, as you do, people are going to come around you and say, you know what? You are really gifted in that. You're doing an amazing job. And I've seen how you are blessing others and encouraging others in this way that you are serving. That is how you find out what your spiritual gifts are. So are you committed to the local expression of the church? And then all of these will enable us to live the mission and we can work together to see Christ proclaimed near and far. Amen? That's our mission this morning, brothers and sisters. May we be about the Lord's business in whatever way that he has for us. May we come to the Lord each week, each morning, be in his word, be in other solid, solid books that um, expand our knowledge of God's word and encourage us. Maybe we'd be asking the Holy Spirit to use us each week to bring those in our path that need the gospel, need the love of Christ. May we stand for that truth, even if the world hates us, and we know it will. Jesus promised that. May we stand for the Lord. So let's pray together now. Let's pray together. And as I do, let's begin to prepare our hearts, prepare for communion together. It's the first Sunday of the month, and here at Shoreline, um, we take the first Sunday and set it apart to come once again to the Lord's table, um, to remember the work of Christ that we, we sang about, come behold, we are going to come behold the wondrous mystery, the mystery that has been revealed to us through the work of Christ. And just be, um, as we're going to sing together, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a song. But as we, as we sing together, take some time and come before the Lord. Um, examine your life before the Lord. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, whether it's before the Lord or even it's be before uh, someone else, take care of that. Um, and then if you're not a believer here, if you have not truly repented and trusted Christ like you trusted a parachute, like you're jumping out of a plane and trust that parachute, you trust Christ to save you. Um, if you are not a believer here, please abstain. This is for believers only. But we would love to, love to talk with you about how you can be saved how the gospel can come and change your life. And you can have a new, new worldview, a new mission. Um, so as we, as we, after I pray and as we sing together, we have the communion elements on the uh, two tables in the back. So feel free at your own leisure while we're singing to go and, and pick one up and then come back to your seats. And after we sing, we'll consider the body and blood of our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege it is to open your word this morning, um, to see and be reminded of the truth that's within these holy pages, Lord. We, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that your word is sufficient for us, Lord, that it gives us everything we need to know for how to live our life and how to serve you. Lord, we thank you that you have clearly given us the mission, Lord, the mission to proclaim the gospel both near and far, to every tribe, tongue, 
and nation, Lord, to disciple others, to see more disciples raised up so they will go on and disciple more. Lord, it's our desire to see the church grow, the church to expand. Lord, even today we know that there are many people groups and language groups who still have not had the opportunity to hear your word. We lift up missionaries that are serving in different countries, specifically with those that have never had a chance to hear. We lift them up and ask that you give them strength this morning as they're ministering um, in the midst of the virus, in the midst of uncertain times, Lord. We ask that you would give us that same faith, Lord, that same resolute, steadfast hope in your word, Lord, that just as missionaries that we support are willing to leave the country and to take the gospel somewhere else. Lord, may we have that same drive. Maybe it's not for us to leave our country, but Lord, we may, may we have that same devotion to you and to the gospel, Lord, to the love of Christ that has been so graciously displayed in our lives, Lord. We ask now that you would um, be among us as we once again consider your body that was broken for us and the blood that was poured out for us. Lord, thank you for how faithful you are in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.